Hey everyone, I'm Bruce and you're listening to Clearly Unfiltered, a short-form podcast that offers clear, concise, unfiltered and undoubtedly flawed thoughts on how and why I'm butchering some of my own sacred cows. In each episode, I'm going to let those steaks sizzle and serve them up medium rare or blue and now and again well done or charred. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank all of you who listened to, shared, commented on and sent me DMs about episode one. It's been encouraging to get that feedback and to know that my experience with OCD, anxiety and depression has resonated with and has even helped people. I'd also like to add a brief content warning. Later in this episode, I mentioned self-harm and suicide, which might be upsetting to some listeners. What a journey it has been to prepare for this episode. (laughs) I've learned so much in the process, and as a result, I'm even more resolute about the lessons I'm learning. I'm incredibly grateful to two people, both Jericho Fife and Olivia Meeks have helped me frame this episode, and their contributions have been invaluable. If you listen to episode one, you'd know already that this episode is about sharing my journey to LGBTQIA plus solidarity, and I'll get to speak about that in a minute, but I first want to address some elephants in the room. Firstly, I am a cisgender heterosexual white male, and my pronouns are he, him. Because of this, I stand in a position of privilege, which I'll address later, Uh, But it makes me mindful of the fact that I cannot understand the experience of people in the LGBTQIA plus community, nor can I speak on their behalf. I also want to recognize that the weight of my words are not as heavy for me as they are for those in the LGBTQIA plus community who experience the pain of marginalization and animosity all the time. Secondly, I am going to be speaking about my journey against the backdrop of my conservative evangelical upbringing. Some of what I share in this episode will make some of you who are listening feel uncomfortable, especially those of you from that particular tradition who haven't given much thought to the intersection of faith, gender and sexuality. This really isn't a fight, so please don't fight back. I'm also not going to get into theological debates about what I share because I'm really comfortable in my beliefs. However, I will share some resources in the episode notes for those of you who have been feeling discomfort about your church being unaffirming of LGBTQIA people. I'm also very happy to engage in conversation about where I stand. I'm just not going to argue ad infinitum about it. I'd also briefly like to address the concept of allyship, because even in preparing for this episode, I've had my views challenged. Simplistically, an ally is someone with privilege who is helping and standing with someone being marginalized. Although seemingly noble, I've also learned that allyship can be problematic, especially when it's performative. The problem with performative allyship is that it doesn't challenge the status quo and it continues to undermine any attempts to change the things that support structural and other barriers for marginalized groups. As the late Black Panther Party leader Eldridge Cleaver asserted, there's no more neutrality in the world. You either have to be part of the solution or you're going to be part of the problem. Award-winning journalist Ernest Owens goes so far as to say that the concept of allyship itself is flawed and despite good intentions, perpetuates an uneven distribution of power that further disenfranchises the marginalized. 
Activist Halle Sebastian agrees and highlights that poor allyship is speaking over marginalized people by taking credit and receiving recognition for arguments that the unprivileged have been making for their entire lives. Owens goes on to suggest that allyship has run its course and asks instead for people to stand in solidarity with marginalized groups. My learnings from Owen's insights challenged my views and caused me to pause in the production process and change the name of this episode from allyship to solidarity, because I find his definition of solidarity to be profound. He asserts, being in solidarity suggests that you come without prejudgments, conditions or self-interests in supporting marginalized people. It's about shifting the focus on those who need it the most rather than accommodating your privilege. To be in solidarity means to address issues alongside those who face marginalization, not in front of them paternalistically or behind them timidly. Ideologically, being in solidarity requires more empathy and compassion and rejects notions of respectability politics and tone policing. While allyship is a vanity fair for advocates, being in solidarity is a more humbled and accountable position and all those privileged in some way, shape or form should be striving to achieve it. With that in mind, I think the Anti-Oppression Network defines best the journey I find myself on, and that is to be involved in the active, consistent and arduous practice of unlearning and re-evaluating, in which my position of privilege and power seeks to operate in solidarity with marginalized groups. With that said, there's a big T-bone in the skillet from a sacred cow of sorts that needs to be charred. So with the gas on high, let's get cooking. I grew up in a tradition that preached explicitly and implicitly that LGBTQIA people were living in sin and that the only way these people could find peace and live a full life was to change who they were. While some in the Christian tradition have become fully affirming of the queer community, at best many preach tolerance instead of acceptance and at worst display unmitigated hate. A family member reminded me as I shared a draft of this episode with them that because of the narrative perpetuated by the commonly held Christian worldview and, to be frank, that of other faiths, many LGBTQIA people have experienced imprisonment, violence and even death for simply being who they are. In fact, there are still 70 countries where LGBTQIA people are criminalized. In 11 of these, the death penalty is imposed or is at least a possibility for private consensual, same-sex sexual activity. So as uncomfortable as it is to talk about this indoctrination, so many people still hold vehemently to the view that people in the LGBTQIA community are an abomination. And that's why I believe it's essential to be clear about my background, because in the process of disentangling myself from evangelicalism and embracing a broader expression of faith, which I'll explore in another episode, I've become fully affirming and comfortably so of the LGBTQIA community and I stand in solidarity with them and I deeply desire to see the world at large becoming a safer and more supportive place for all people. In no particular order, here are some of the critical moments that opened my eyes to the flawed beliefs that growing up I once accepted as truth. I remember from a young age being uncomfortable with homophobia, but still conforming to the stereotypical norm, you know, laughing at slurs disguised as jokes and the use of gay as a pejorative term, mainly because I didn't have the courage to do otherwise. Nevertheless, somewhere deep down, I sensed that all this was wrong, mainly because it didn't add up with what I'd been taught, that God is love. 
So in deciding how to share a very complex journey best, I've decided to break it down into some of the things I've learned and what I've decided as a result. While many of the things I've learned might seem obvious, I think this fact alone highlights how much work there is to do on the path to solidarity with the LGBTQIA community. Firstly, I've learned that to be a better human, I've had to unlearn fear. One of the hard pills to swallow about my upbringing is that, if I'm honest, countless men and boys like me growing up in the 80s in patriarchal apartheid South Africa were conditioned to fear LGBTQIA people. In that period of time, the 80s in particular, HIV AIDS became more prevalent and it birthed an antagonistic anti-gay reaction across America, which then spilled over to the rest of the world. Journalists in those days were even lightheartedly calling HIV AIDS the gay plague. Rhetoric which further advanced the fear of LGBTQIA people and a movement to suppress their rights. Edward Albert's words ring true here. Fear is the only enemy, born of ignorance and the parent of anger and hate. This conditioning was pervasive, and those of us in our 40s and older now have to dismantle so much of this conditioning to be more inclusive. So I've had to unlearn that conditioned fear. I've had to see it for what it was, a not-so-subtle nudge towards hate, anger, and ignorance. Brene Brown's truth bomb that people are hard to hate close up challenges me. She encourages us to move in. She tells us to speak truth to bullshit, be civil, hold hands with strangers, have a strong back, soft front and wild heart. And so as I've considered the people close to me who have come out, family and friends, and the marginalized voices of other LGBTQIA plus folks whom I've chosen to listen to instead of speaking over, I've realized that my childhood fear was ignorance and that this ignorance has to stop. As a result, I've learned that listening is more important than speaking. You see, voices like mine, cishet white males, have been far too loud for far too long. And we've dominated conversations and narratives, often bullying our way in and platforming our own opinions because we've often not been challenged. It's time for us to sit down and listen for a change because listening, like discomfort, is a gateway to learning. As Olivia Meeks pointed out to me, though, the irony of this podcast being about me speaking is not lost on me. She reminded me that stories like the one I'm telling here are necessary in the world because, sadly, those who are still living in fear will often listen to voices like mine before they listen to those like hers. I've also learned that hate is harmful. One of the favorite pieces of work that I do as part of my day job is the facilitation of an online class for teachers, which is focused on building a framework for responsible sexual citizenship education in schools. The thing that always leaves me cold as we discuss LGBTQIA plus youth's experience of the world and their sense of belonging is that they are exponentially more likely to self-harm and contemplate suicide than their non-LGBTQIA plus peers. In recent research carried out by Just Like Us, an LGBTQIA plus young people's charity in the UK, researchers found that 68% of LGBTQIA plus young people had experienced suicidal thoughts, compared with 29% of young people who were not LGBTQIA plus. I could go on and list more and more stats, but again, a family member highlighted the truth to me that stats reduce real people down to a number. 
and can invalidate the enormity of the challenge facing these people. In a conversation I had with Julie Mencher, a US-based psychotherapist in private practice and a pioneer in LGBTQIA education, psychotherapy and advocacy, I was struck even more by the power of real allyship. In our conversation, she said this to me. She said, we know that what makes the difference between LGBTQIA kids with mental health problems and those without them is the support of parents and teachers. In other words, the adults in these kids' lives. As a former teacher, I didn't want to be part of causing harm. I wanted to be part of supporting the fullness of life for all my students. In turn, I want to be supportive of the fullness of life for all people. Research the youth stats just for a minute for LGBTQIA self-harm and suicide contemplation and you'll be shaken to the core. But it's also important to remember that many people don't come out until they are much older, either because of internalized homophobia or not being allowed to recognize that the feelings they have are okay. Someone recently shared with me a particularly sad account of people they know who have waited until a family member has passed before coming out because of the rejection, harmful effects and unknown circumstances they would experience as a result. I'll say it again. Hate, even dressed in sheep's clothing, is harmful. I've also learned that being LGBTQIA is not a choice. People are who they are. And if you believe in God and creation, I believe that all people are made in the image of God. Not some people, everyone. PFLAG highlights that people don't decide whom they're attracted to, and therapy, treatment or persuasion won't change a person's sexual orientation. You also can't turn a person gay. For example, exposing a boy to toys traditionally made for girls, such as dolls, won't cause him to be gay. In a recent article, molecular biologist Bill Sullivan reminds us that numerous studies have established that sex is not just male or female. Rather, it is a continuum that emerges from a person's genetic makeup. Nonetheless, misconceptions persist that same-sex attraction is a choice that warrants condemnation or conversion and leads to discrimination and persecution. So I've come to believe that people are who they've been created to be, and they are who they say they are. I refuse to perpetuate the misconceptions and condemnation. I've also learned that there is sufficient evidence in other interpretations of the Bible that challenge and debunk the theological framework that shaped my childhood fear of the LGBTQIA community. I'm going to leave this thought hanging for a bit because there are many theological scholars who are much brighter than me doing good work in this regard. And I also believe that Christians who are wrestling with this issue should do the work for themselves. So check out the Reformation Project for a start. You can find them on reformationproject.org or on Instagram at the Reformation Project. Truth is, as P. Flagg points out, religious objections still interfere with the equality of LGBTQ people. And arguments from the Bible, tradition and religious authorities are cited by critics to justify discrimination and abuse. Again, I'm not willing to justify discrimination and abuse. I've learned many things and there are probably tons to share. But the last thing I'm going to share in this episode is that I've learned that the space I hold in this world can be harmful to others. I mentioned this in the beginning of the episode, but 
I've come to recognize that the privilege I hold as a cisgender heterosexual white male offers me many unearned benefits that many people do not enjoy. If I am blind to this privilege and live without attempting to deconstruct the impact this has on others, at best I'm perpetuating microaggressions and at worst real harm. So I have to be intentionally aware, as we all do, in every moment of the way the space I takes up crowds out others. At the same time, I need to be working hard at stepping back and letting others shine. As I said, there are probably many more lessons and I learn new ways of being every day and I don't think I'll ever stop learning. But as I finish up this episode, I wanted to leave you with some thoughts about how I've chosen to live because of what I've learned. I've chosen to love above all else. After all, love is love. I've chosen to stand in solidarity with LGBTQIA plus folk. I've decided to become braver and challenge anti-LGBTQIA plus rhetoric, even if my voice shakes or if it means losing friends. I've chosen to learn all I can, and I'm on a journey in this regard, about the LGBTQIA plus community to try and understand how hostile the world is for marginalized folk. I've chosen to advocate for LGBTQIA plus children and teens in my spheres of influence because I believe this is particularly where I can make a real difference. I've chosen to believe because I do still believe in a creator that people were created to be who they are and real love is about celebrating that, not expecting people to change. I've chosen to model this solidarity to my daughters who, I must be honest, teach me a hell of a lot more than I teach them. And I've decided that if I ever commit to attending a church again, it will have to be a church that is fully affirming of LGBTQIA plus people, which, to be honest, is pretty difficult in conservative Pretoria, South Africa, where I live. In a recent Instagram Live with Joe Lumen, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa said something that resonates deeply with me. They said, I'm willing to risk it all to follow Jesus. The theology that I espouse, which always comes out in practice, is that if there is a God, God has a preferential option for those on the underside of history. If our structures are not benefiting the least of these, if the underside of history do not have a voice, then we are doomed. And so what I've realized is that the beliefs that shape my worldview, particularly those that are harmful to others, needn't continue to harm people both because I'm deconstructing some of those, but also because I'm holding on to the ones that champion love over everything else. Truth is, I can change, and so can you. I can do the work. You can also do the work. I can educate myself, and so can you. You and I can become better people. We can do what is right. And so that's this journey in a nutshell. But before I go, I'd like to point you to the episode notes in which I highlight some resources that have helped me to stand in solidarity. You can follow Clearly Unfiltered on Instagram at Clearly Unfiltered Pod. We're also on Twitter at Clearly Pod. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please leave a rating on your favorite podcast platform. Keep an eye out for episode three sometime around April 15th. I'm hoping to be speaking with a guest about being a spiritual misfit. (laughs) Until then, be cool and stay safe.